Hey, it's Alan, and I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to the ongoing history of new music early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. In a less enlightened time, women were barely tolerated by the rock and roll establishment. Oh, they could sing, shake a tambourine, and look pretty, but that was about it. In retrospect, the sexism and misogyny was unbelievable, but back in the day, that was business as usual. Some strong women did break through. Joan Baez, Aretha Franklin, Diana Ross, Carol King, Janis Joplin, but they were the exceptions. This sexism continued through the early and mid-70s. The prevailing wisdom that women just couldn't rock. It was a biological impossibility, apparently. But then along came punk rock and a sense of egalitarianism. The central tenet of being a punk was that anyone with anything to say should be allowed to say it, regardless of musical ability, class, race, religion, or gender. The punk rock of the 70s opened musical doors for women more than any other era in musical history. Now, that doesn't mean that the sexism and the misogyny and the abuse was over. No, 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 no. But it did pave the way for many more strong, powerful female musicians. Slow, steady progress was made through the 80s, and yes, there were setbacks, but by the time we got into the next decade, the music world was flooded with women who in many ways were able to set the agenda for all rock music. This is part two of our series on the 1990s. This is the Ongoing History of New Music, the podcast edition with Alan Cross. Hello again, I'm Alan Cross, and this is part two of our look back on the alt-rock world of the 1990s. Actually, this is part one of part two because I've divided our look at the women of the 90s into a couple of shows because this is a subject that's so important to those years. We do not want to give anybody short shrift. And right now, we are going to focus on the biggest solo performers of the decade. This episode will feature eight of these women, all of whom have had lasting influences, not just on alt-rock, but on music in general. And I think the best way to tackle this is to go in chronological order. And we're actually going to start this look at 90s alt-rock women in the 1980s, because that's when Sinead O'Connor first appeared. It, it is really hard to explain how much of a breath of fresh air this woman was when her debut album appeared in 1987. Before it, though, there were rumors. And remember, these are pre-internet days. There were rumors of a tiny bald woman with this huge voice and this punk rock screw you attitude. Much of the news came out of Mother Records, which was owned by U2. When The Edge was tapped to write the soundtrack for a movie called Captive in 1986, he got Sinead to co-write and sing on one song. She was 19 at the time. A year later, at the age of 20 and seven months pregnant, an unexpected situation coming from a relationship with a session drummer, she was amazingly allowed to self-produce her debut album. Nobody at that age was given that kind of power and control for a major label release, but Sinead got it. And the album was, was, was stunning. The Line and the Cobra was a sensation. There was one song in particular that seemed to resonate with her new female fans. It was, to that point, the angriest and most honest breakup song that any of us had ever heard. Stunning. 
Still an insanely powerful song, Sinead O'Connor from 1987 with Troy from her first album, The Lion and the Cobra. Sinead, of course, went on to become one of the strongest female voices of the early 1990s, but she also had this penchant for self-sabotage and not wanting to play the record company game. But those were her choices, and a lot of women, a lot of music fans, period, loved her for it. Ani DeFranco was similar to Sinead, except that she didn't get anywhere near the same amount of mainstream attention, which is a real shame because she is astoundingly good. Ani is from Buffalo. She's a singer, a songwriter, a poet, a feminist, and a businesswoman with her own record label, Righteous Babe Records. I mean, what's not to like and admire? She started busking at the age of nine. Original songs started coming at age 14. And by the time she was 15, she was living on her own as an emancipated minor. In other words, she had freed herself from her parents' control and was living as an adult at age 15. Ani has released more than 20 records and was into the alt-folk thing before anybody was calling it that. She was everywhere through the 90s. Lots of concerts, lots of benefits, lots of coverage in magazines like Spin and Miz, and some coverage on MTV and VH1. Ani remained and thrived as an indie artist. Righteous Babe started releasing records by other artists, and books of poetry followed, and more activism. Ani has never had any big alt-rock radio hits, and her records have never been what you'd call big sellers, but frankly, she's never really needed those traditional avenues to success. Her do-it-yourself attitude was really all she needed. She even nabbed a bunch of Grammy Award nominations and a few wins. Now, to put it another way, you know how indie artists conduct their careers today? That's how Ani has always done it, since the middle 80s. So talk about a pioneer and inspiration, right? This is from her 1990 self-titled debut record. It's called Both Hands. And I'm walking out in the rain And I am listening to the low moan And the dial tone again And I am getting nowhere with you And I can't let it go And I can't get that's Ani DeFranco in Both Hands from 1990. You cannot have any discussion of alt-rock women of the 90s without talking about her. Let's skip ahead to 1992 for the next woman on our list, and that's Tori Amos. Now, Tori was a piano prodigy who grew up in a strict religious family in Baltimore, which is something that really didn't sit all that well with her. And when she was sent to a formal music school for training, she annoyed everybody by insisting on playing rock songs instead of practicing scales and learning about Chopin. There was a brief spin as the lead singer in a hair metal band called Why Can't Tori Read, which was really weird, but then that came to a blessed end, and she followed her muse into a region occupied by earlier performers like Kate Bush. Highly emotional, very confessional, extremely powerful stuff, and occasionally both therapeutic for both her and anyone who listened to her music. Her first solo album, Little Earthquakes, was one of the first releases of 1992, and at first nobody really knew what to make of it. Now, remember that this was at the time grunge was on the ascendant. The number one album all over the world was Nirvana's Nevermind, and there was a race to sign bands that sounded like Nirvana. But along came Tori with a series of piano-based songs that were exactly the opposite of the big guitar and testosterone that was all in vogue. How and why did she cut through? Well, a couple of reasons. Remember what I said about how the alt-rock explosion of the early 90s broke down a lot of prejudices when it came to music made by women? Well, that was one reason. Second, some old-school alt-rock fans remembered Kate Bush and embraced Tori as her spiritual successor. And the third and most important reason was that underneath all the guitar bluster, 
A lot of grunge displayed fear and vulnerability and confusion. Tori's music was much the same, except quieter and from a female perspective. She was anti-grunge, which in the musical environment of the early 90s worked very well. Record labels were so surprised at the rise of alternative, they were willing to take a chance at signing anything that might be considered left of the mainstream. And if that meant a classically trained redhead who was ultra-physical when playing her piano, well, so be it. Tori Amos, our third heroine of the alt-rock 90s. When we come back, a shape-shifting former tomboy from Dorset, England, who continues to inspire millions. You're listening to the Ongoing History of New Music, the podcast edition with Alan Cross. This is the second episode of a series of Ongoing History shows that looks back on the 1990s, and we're looking at the solo female performers of the decade who helped shape much of the music back then. Fourth on this list is PJ Harvey. I adore this woman. She can play just about any musical instrument. She writes poetry, has the occasional acting gig, wins all kinds of awards, has a most excellent order of the British Empire award, and never makes the same kind of album twice. Her parents were into all kinds of weird music, like Frank Zappa and Captain Beefheart, as well as Bob Dylan and all sorts of blues. They had musician friends, including Ian Stewart, the keyboard player for the Rolling Stones. PJ was originally very much a tomboy, but once she got started in the music business, she became almost Bowie-esque with the way she changes her image for almost every album project. And not just her clothes, but she experiments with her physical appearance, too. And a lot of that help comes from her photographer friend, Maria Monachek. PJ came along at exactly the right time. When alt-rock exploded in the early 90s, she was ready. And along with Tori Amos and Ani DeFranco and Sinead O'Connor and a few more women whom we'll talk about later, got a lot of attention from the right crowds. As singer-songwriters go, she was one of the most influential of all the alt-rock women of the 90s. Her material is very honest, and she can also get very dark. She can be very theatrical and sometimes very punk-like. And she's not afraid to explore any form of music. Folk, art rock, guitar-heavy stuff, trip-hop. She is brilliantly versatile. Let's go back to the beginning and her first proper album. It was called Dry, and it was released in 1992 and contained this single. This is Sheila Nagig. Polly, Jean Harvey, and Sheila Nagig, a single from a 1992 album called Dry. Around the same time P.J. Harvey and Tori Amos were breaking through, Bjork decided to break from her band, The Sugar Cubes, and go solo. Bjork Goodman's Dottier was another child prodigy who went rogue. She studied classical music from the age of six, recorded her first album at the age of 12, and was on Icelandic radio and TV all the time. What a sweet little girl, the people of Iceland said. Then she discovered punk, and all bets were off. She was in all-girl bands with names like Spit and Snot, a group called Tippy Tipperass, which translates as Cork the Bitch's Ass. That was another group. And then there was a group called Kukul, which is the Icelandic word for sorcery. She got all into goth back then. 
After that came the Sugar Cubes, and they, by the way, once broke into a local government radio station and played what they thought was proper music until they were arrested. The Sugar Cubes were the right brand of weirdness for the Gen X rock community, and they were embraced from the time they were formed in 1986 until their breakup in 1992. And at the center of it all was Bjork, this pixie-ish thing with a massive singing voice that was often punctuated by shrieks and howls and growls and then back down to little girl whispering. Iceland was way too small for Bjork, so she moved to London, where she began to experiment with music and sounds and visuals, something that continues to this day. Nothing Bjork does, and I mean nothing she does, is what anyone would call normal. And that's exactly what made her such a darling to the alt-rock kids of the 1990s. If I described something to you as Bjorkish, you know exactly what I mean, right? Her second album was called Debut, and I know that's confusing because, remember, she released her first record back in 1977 when she was just 12. Again, she was in the right place at the right time. A strong female with a style that could not be categorized. And it also helped that she could be very photogenic, even if she was wearing, you know, a a weird dress that looked like a swan. This is from 93, Bjork and Big Time Sensuality. Bjork and Big Time Sensuality from 1993, and that was just the start. Bjork became a pop culture darling for the rest of the decade and beyond. And let me tell you something, if you're the kind of person who likes to have your musical horizons challenged and broadened, dig into any Bjork album, and I mean any record, and you will, well, just good luck with that. It's worth the journey, though. Now, let's see if you agree with my pick for the next person on this list, and that's Sarah McLaughlin. Yes, her fan base is now far beyond that of the alt-rock world. But this is where she started her career, at least in Canada. Her first album came out in 1988. But by 1993, with her album Fumbling Towards Ecstasy, she was firmly established as an alt-rock star. Sarah was, and, and still is, I suppose, Canada's answer to Tori Amos. And like Tori, she started in a punky sort of band before moving to the more powerful realm of the singer-songwriter. And like Tori, she wrote powerful emotional songs, mostly from a piano and occasionally from an acoustic guitar. By the time she released that third album, not only had she become a Canadian alt-rock star, she was moving on to becoming a massive global mainstream star. By the end of the 90s, her influence was so great that she was able to spearhead a massive touring concert event called Lilith Fair. No other project has ever showcased female musicians on a scale like this. Three stages... Dozens of women, dozens of cities. Tracy Chapman, Cheryl Crow, Fiona Apple, Victoria Williams, Dido, Pat Benatar, Diana Krall, Missy Elliott, Bonnie Raitt, Liz Fair, Queen Latifah, Sinead O'Connor, Dixie Chicks, Chrissy Hind, Christina Aguilera, Biff Naked. I could go on and on and on, but there are hundreds of names associated with those tours in 1997, 1998, and 1999. I think this qualifies, Sarah, don't you?
Sarah McLaughlin with Building a Mystery, recorded live at a stop on the 1997 Lilith Fair Tour, which was a traveling musical caravan she established to showcase hundreds of female performers over its lifespan. There are two more alt-rock female performers of the 90s that I want to talk about, and you've probably been waiting for the other Canadian that's got to be on this list. And don't worry, because she's coming up. Now, back to the ongoing history of new music, the podcast edition with Alan Cross. Welcome back to part two of this look back on the alt-rock of the 1990s. Call this chapter 2A because the women of the 90s need that much time. And we've started the first part of part two with the most important female solo performers of the decade. Next up is Liz Fair. And like everybody else I've mentioned so far, her appeal lay in her projection of strength. And while she definitely played up her looks and sexiness, she wasn't demure or coy. For her, sex and sexuality was a strength, something powerful, something that should be expressed with no shame and nothing to apologize for. Her attitude was, I can be as sexually frank as any man. And we're not talking about anything sluttish, even if I can use that word. It's just modern and real and honest and, and smart. Many women found that attitude refreshing and empowering and as something to be admired. And many guys, me included, found that attractive and and fascinating and and, and just great. Again, let's put this into context. It is 1994. We are only a decade or so away from so many of the old-fashioned ideas about how a female performer could be portrayed. In many ways, Liz was the alt-rock version of some of the characteristics Madonna had. Get out of my way. Oh, and hello, boys. You think you can handle me? Yeah, good luck with that. From 1994, an album entitled Whip Smart that's Chicago's Liz Fair with Supernova. These days, Liz works composing music for television. You know a program called The 100? That's all Liz's music. This is the part of the story when we finally get to Alanis Morissette. I remember exactly where I was when I heard the song You Oughta Know for the first time. It was June of 1995. I was listening to the radio driving up the 101 freeway in Los Angeles. Wow, said my wife, who was in the car with me. That is an angry song. I love it. And it was angry. And looking back, it was almost like revenge porn set to music. When the guy on the radio identified the singer as Alanis Morissette and that she was from Canada, I thought, that can't be the same Alanis that released those two failed pop albums a couple of years ago, can it? But it was. What had happened to transform this woman from a wannabe pop starlet from Ottawa to this woman with one of the angriest breakup songs anyone has ever heard? Well, a a breakup for one. There was a real person behind You Ought to Know, which is the subject for another show. But it was also a move to Los Angeles and a writing partnership with a producer named Glenn Ballard. Despite two flops, Alanis' publishing company had great faith in her and matched her up with Ballard. The chemistry was, was damn close to perfect, And over the course of about a year, all these songs poured out. No more pure pop. The result was more post-grunge than anything else. And it has been called the most perfect female record ever made. That was from Katy Perry, by the way, who cites that album as one of her greatest inspirations. And there were thousands and thousands of female musicians who took cues from this record. The best estimate we have for sales is 33 million copies. I've seen it on charts 
that listed as the 12th best-selling album of all time. It's right up there with Michael Jackson's Bad, Led Zeppelin IV, and The Beatles' Sgt. Pepper. The only women who have sold more copies of an individual album are Shania Twain and Whitney Houston. Do I need to go on about how Alanis Morissette is one of the most important alt-rock figures of the 90s? Or should we just go ahead and say that she's one of the most influential female singers in the history of music, period? If the hashtag MeToo had been around in 1995, it would have definitely been linked to this song. Back in a moment. More of the ongoing history of new music, the podcast edition with Alan Cross. This list of influential alt-rock women of the 90s, Sinead O'Connor, Ani DeFranco, Tori Amos, PJ Harvey, Sarah McLaughlin, Bjork, Liz Fair, and Alanis Morissette is by no means complete. If there was time, we would go through Meredith Brooks and Poe and Fiona Apple and Joan Osborne and Beth Orton and Tracy Bonham. They're just some of the many other women that we could talk about. And again, this was chapter 2A of our look back at the decade. Chapter 2B will be the influential all-female or female-fronted bands of the 90s. And you're probably already making a list in your head, aren't you? That's next time. Meanwhile, join me at my website, which is a ajournalofmusicalthings.com. I update it every day. And it also comes with a nifty free newsletter that will deliver all kinds of cool music to your inbox by 10 a.m. Eastern every day of the week. We can also connect on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Google+, and I'm always available via email, alan at alancross.ca. Part 2B of this deep look at the 1990s coming up next time. Technical Productions by Rob Johnston. I'm Alan Cross. You've been listening to the Ongoing History of New Music, the podcast edition with Alan Cross. Subscribe to the podcast at iTunes and through Google Play. 